So I'm sure, I'm sure many of you are aware, ne- next month is a pretty significant anniversary. Uh, it marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11, uh, what is recorded as the deadliest terrorist attack in human history. As we approach that observance, media outlets are, are dedicating coverage to reflect on the occasion uh, and to interview family and friends that have confronted significant loss. What Bobby McIlvain left behind is one such article that was recently published in The Atlantic. It is a heartbreaking story detailing the journey of grief for a mother and a father and a brother and a former fiance of a man who died. The quotes indicate it is not easy to recover from significant sadness and sorrow. One therapist is quoted as saying, recovering from grief, imagine that you're all at the top of a mountain, but you all have broken bones. You you each have to find your own way down. It's not easy to find your way down a mountain when your bones are all broken. Another expert piggybacks off this language saying that that type of story suggests everyone will make it down. Some people never get down the mountain at all. The, The article demonstrates in the midst of deep pain and hurt, we can get swallowed up in our sorrow and our sadness. Each of us struggle to deal with loss and to heal and to be happy. So so losing a loved one is a reason individuals experience grief and sadness, but there are are certainly others. What type of circumstances or situations lead you to feel down? A recent injury or onset of pain that, that won't heal and won't go away. A family member experiencing sorrow and sadness. Parents, parents engaging one of their children that is not doing well uh, emotionally or academically or spiritually. Maybe you're experiencing conflict and tension with someone in the church or someone in your biological family. Maybe you've become aware of how someone has sinned against you causing you hurt, sins of gossip, or talking over or turning away when you're trying to have challenging conversations with them. Maybe you're aware of how you have been abused and misused by family members and friends and people you trust. How do you describe your disposition when you feel down? There are all all sorts of words we we could use. Distracted, distraught, downcast, depressed, disgraced, drowning, defeated, dysregulated, destroyed, damaged, disappointed. Does one of those hit you in particular? Psalm 25 engages all sorts of reasons and ways people tend to feel down. Verse 17 
if we look at that, is a summary of what's going on in the life and heart of the psalmist. The distress of my heart increase. Bring me out of my sufferings. If you've been with us in in prior weeks, we've talked about psalms of lament, psalms expressing grief and sorrow. This is one of those psalms. But, But this psalm is not ultimately about being in a position of feeling down. Verse 1, depending on the translation you're using, says something like this. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In the midst of experiencing situations and circumstances leading us to feel down, the psalmist is looking up. So our big idea this morning is God's people look up when we feel down. As we explore this big idea in Psalm 25, we're going to find it, it's, a, it's a passage that meanders back and forth. It's kind of like an amusement park ride. It's not going anywhere specifically, but more so in, in circles. We don't see this in the English, but the psalm was written so each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I mean, that seems linear and clear, except that two letters are oddly missing. Uh, Some letters are repeated. And and the last letter occurs in verse 21, even though there are 22 verses. Uh, Another letter is added in verse 22, so it's kind of like it hangs out there like an afterthought. Oh, oh, I forgot something. That structure kind of reflects how many of us experience feeling down. We're less clear and coherent. We have difficulty expressing ourselves in a calm and collected manner. I might say that the structure indicates that the author David may have had a glass of wine or two before he wrote this, but some of you may think I'm accusing him of being drunk rather than inspired by the Spirit, which I'm certainly not doing. Because of the non-linear structure, It's difficult to focus on particular verses or thoughts. Doing so has the potential to dismiss how topics are interconnected. Like a spider web, pulling one thread out could dismantle the whole larger work. But we'll do our best. So so rather than work through this passage beginning to end, we're going to focus on specific themes. First, themes of feeling down. And second, we'll focus on themes of what God's people see when we look up. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, open it up to Psalm 25. For those who are newer, typically we we don't put passages or verses up on the screen. We like you to be able to see the whole passage as we reference particular aspects. And so if if you need a Bible, I think we have them back on that table as you enter and exit the auditorium, go ahead and grab one. Feel free to keep it. It's yours. So as we examine Psalm 25, first focusing on reasons people feel down, we'll start in verse 2. The text says, my God, I trust in you. Okay, by the way, this is looking up when we feel down. It's that interconnectedness. My God, I trust in you. Do not let me be disgraced. Do not let my enemies gloat over me. So one reason we feel down is because we feel disgraced. The the psalmist identifies the source of feeling disgraced as enemies. 
Now, we encounter a variety of enemies as we advance in life. Some human, some are not human. Things like bouts with our physical bodies where they do not function the way they were designed. We battle diseases. We experience loss. Things like the death of a friend, losing a job, losing physical strength. Sometimes enemies are reflecting on aspects of life that are particularly painful. In this case, the enemies identified gloat over me. So not only do these adversaries harm and hurt, they rubbed it in, causing deep pain and sadness. So much so, we feel disgraced. These individuals do not treat us with respect, as though we are men and women made in God's image. Someone uses the language to demean you, you're the worst. You don't deserve to be called my daughter. Why can't you be more like your brother? Why are you such a drama queen? Those words lead you to feel disgraced. Someone is frustrated with you. Rather than address it with you directly, you find out they talk about it with others. They gossip, they spread rumors, they share their grievances uh, with individuals besides you. Their actions lead you to feel disgraced. Some of you, too many of you, have experienced the sin of being sinned against sexually. Someone held a position of authority and power in your life, or someone had great influence and they took advantage of you. Maybe an older relative, a parent, a grandparent, someone in church authority. As you reflect, you feel disgraced. When you encounter these enemies gloating over you, when others do not treat you as though you were a man or woman that was made in God's image, how do you feel? Defeated? Humiliated? Embarrassed? Unsafe? Do you, do you think things like, I'm a failure? There must be something wrong with me. How does feeling disgraced affect your relationships with others? And what about with God? So feeling disgraced is one reason identified in the psalm that we tend to feel down. A second is we feel guilty. Let's look at verse 7. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my acts of rebellion. In keeping with your faithful love, remember me because of your goodness, Lord. So, so again, we're seeing this interconnectedness of looking up. Do not remember when we're feeling down. The plea here, it may be referencing sins that have yet to be confessed, progressing through an act of repentance. But, but it seems these are less words of repentance like those we encounter in Psalm 51 or Psalm 32 and more words expressing the heart of someone who is heavy and burdened with regret and remorse. Listen to verse 11. Lord, for the sake of your name, forgive my iniquity, for it is immense. So, so it is one thing to, to feel disgraced, feeling down because of something dark done to us. It is another to feel down 
because of something dark that we did. Some of you have stories of past sin. You have never told anyone. That past action makes you feel disgusting and dirty. You can't say what you did out loud because those sins have so much power. They lead us to believe that God can't love me. Now, these are not the types of sins we all accept. Telling a white lie, sharing a bit of gossip, being greedy, getting drunk once in a while. Everyone does that type of thing. Of course, of course God can forgive that. These are sins we believe that if people knew, they would see us differently. They would reject us. They would spend less time with us. They would would look down on us every time they saw us. When you are confronted with guilt, how do you view yourself? Dirty? Less than others? What do you say to yourself? I'm so stupid. I, I need to make up for this. Christians don't do what I did. I need to take that sin to the grave. How does feeling guilty affect your relationship with God, with others? Are, are you prone to withdraw and put up protective walls, and do you lack joy? We can get stuck looking down as we feel guilty. This is a second reason identified in the psalm we tend to feel down. A third, we feel confused. Look at verses 4 and 5. The psalmist says, Make your ways known to me. Lord, teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. I wait for you all day long. Again, interconnected themes of looking up when feeling down. That language, make your ways known, teach me, guide me. It's it's words expressed when we need help with situations or difficult decisions. So there are simple situations in life that lead us to be mildly confused. So I smell good around others. What is the best laundry detergent or deodorant or soap I need to use? Uh, when, When you take the test... Do you choose A, B, C, or D? Always choose C. When you're hungry, do you eat at Chick-fil-A or or, or Raising Cane's or McDonald's? Never choose McDonald's. These are simple situations. They are not situations causing significant confusion. If you're crying out to God, make your way known, teach me and guide me when you're deciding between Chick-fil-A or McDonald's, come see me afterwards. Those type of situations, we can often find an answer. And if we're wrong, the the choice doesn't come with significant consequences. There are other circumstances we face. They are so big, so overwhelming, the answer seems impossible to discern. They are lose-lose type scenarios. You, You have a friend or family member spiraling downwards, Do you talk to them and risk losing the relationship? Or do you let them continue, knowing they will cause great harm, but it's more important to be present in their pain? Or maybe a a family member or friend presents a request. Saying no will cost you relationship. 
Saying yes may cost you and your family even more. The answers to these dilemmas is not found in a textbook or in the counsel of a friend or in reflecting on past experiences. And so you feel confused. When you encounter situations leading you to experience confusion, how does it feel? Like you're drowning and disoriented? Do you feel paralyzed and powerless? Anxious and afraid? Do you struggle to sleep at night? How do you experience situations leading you to feel confused? So this is a third theme of feeling down in Psalm 25. The last we'll mention is we feel lonely. Here's what the psalmist says in verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am alone and afflicted. So at First City, uh, we often talk about how we have been created for relationships. We don't need relationships with others because of our sin or because we're broken or because we're, we're needy or because of the fall. God created us to need others. That's what it means to be made in his image. We were made to experience relationship. Yet there are times it feels we are very much alone. Maybe we feel people don't want to spend time with us. They don't desire to be with us. We see their social media feeds. Man, they are having so much fun hanging around with other people, but we don't get invited into that. Or maybe we do spend time with others, but we feel disconnected, like they don't understand us. They don't get us. I mean, they don't share our perspective on politics or policy, that they don't understand our struggles as a parent, or someone longing to be a parent, or someone who is wrestling out what it means to be single. And sometimes in, in being real and raw with others, we, feel, we just feel like we're way too much. We're overwhelming. And so even though, even though we're present with others, we feel lonely. When you feel lonely, how would you describe it? How does it affect your relationship with others? How does it affect your relationship with God? The psalmist links being lonely with being afflicted. It is painful to feel like we are the one left out. In those moments, we tend to view ourselves as rejected, unloved, not cherished, not seen. So, so themes addressed in Psalm 25 of why we feel down, feeling disgraced, feeling guilty, feeling confused, and feeling lonely. But before transitioning to the themes of what we see when we look up, I should mention, we often do not experience themes, these themes of feeling down in isolation. The, the psalmist mentions one theme, then a second theme, then a third theme, and then goes back to the first. It's kind of messy. The themes are connected and build off one another. For example, when we feel guilty, we tend to feel lonely. No one will understand me. No one will forgive me. We feel confused. Why do I do what I do? How, how, do, I, how do I get past this? And we hear voices, 
earthly and spiritual that aren't challenging you in your sin, but condemning you like you're a failure and a fraud. Such combinations can lead us to turn away from others, to to retreat into a a self-protective shell as we long to be invisible, to literally look down and hang our heads when we interact with others, even when we interact with God. But the psalmist isn't caught looking down when feeling down. The psalmist is looking up, captivated by who God is and how he relates to his people. So we're going to again identify four themes of what the psalmist sees, which connects to these reasons we feel down. Let's examine each. First, when looking up, we see God's rescue. In verse 2, as we talked about feeling disgraced, we looked at how the psalmist cried out, My God, I trust in you. Do not let me be disgraced. Do not let my enemies gloat over me. If we look at verse 3, the psalmist continues, No one who waits for you will be disgraced. Those who act treacherously without cause will be disgraced. So so those two verses are contrasting the words and the activities of an enemy with the activity of God. The enemy uses position and power to disgrace and shame. The Lord uses his position and power to rescue. What the psalmist is saying here, the actions and words leading you to feel disgraced, they do not have the final say. Those words are not the conclusion of the story. To know the conclusion of the story, we look up to how he has rescued us. Now, sometimes when we look up, we do. We see what he has done. And sometimes when we look up, we see what God has promised to do, how he will rescue in the future. That, that future look of how God will rescue leads to the concluding thought of the psalm in verse 22. The psalmist says, God, redeem Israel from all its distresses. God has promised deliverance for his people from all types of suffering and sorrow. That deliverance is the action that has the final say. It is the final word over God's people. Whatever earthly enemy we face, it does not ultimately define us. It does not drive us down. When we look up, we know we will be rescued and redeemed, so we do not despair. We wait expectantly. That word wait, it is frequently mentioned in Psalm 25. In verse 3, in verse 5, and in verse 21. Here's verse 21. May integrity and what is right watch over me, for I wait for you. That that word wait, it is not passive, right? It's not sitting on the rocking chair, sipping a soda, waiting for God to act. It's not taking a nap on the couch, thinking when you wake up, hopefully God has acted. It's not the waiting you do when you get that annoying spinning circle that tells you your computer or your Netflix is buffering. The the waiting here is not even the frantic fretting, wondering what is going to happen. 
Instead, it's, it's a waiting and looking up, expecting God, longing for God to rescue. If seeing enemies that shame us lead us to withdraw as we feel humiliated, insecure, and unsafe, seeing God's rescue frees us to confidently open up and courageously pursue relationships with others. We don't need to disengage and self-protect because we know the final word is that God rescues and redeems us. Second, we see God's forgiveness. So in the midst of feeling guilty, we've mentioned how the psalmist asks for forgiveness. We encountered that in verses 7 and 11. And in verse 18, it's another example. Let me read. Consider my affliction and trouble and forgive all my sin. So, so the psalmist understands the depth of sin is great, but God's forgiveness is greater. In looking up, the psalmist is not defined by sin. Those sins many believe need to be taken to the grave. Sins that can't be stated out loud. Those sins that must not be named because we, we think they have so much power over us. When looking up, God's forgiveness is what determines our reality and our mood. So, so Pilgrim's Progress is a classic piece of literature written in the 1600s by the Puritan John Bunyan. The narrator of the story, by nature of a dream, details the journey of Christian. Christian travels from the city of destruction to the celestial city. So, so the story is an allegory about the Christian life, describing how one grows in Christ towards greater freedom and holiness. There's a pivotal moment in the story of how Christian is freed from the power of sin. At the, at the top of the hill stood a cross, and a little below at the bottom was a stone tomb. In my dream, just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosened from his shoulders and fell off his back. It tumbled and continued to do so down the hill until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell inside and was seen no more. As we look up to the cross, God's people are freed from the burden and weight of past sin. It doesn't have power over us. We see how God has given us victory over sin, even when we have a momentary loss, when we fall back into sin, rather than staying down. We know we have a Savior who went down for us. He took on our guilt, and so we do not carry that burden. He did. In looking up, we see God's forgiveness. Third, we see God's wisdom. If we look at what the, the psalmist says in verses 8 and 9, The Lord is good and upright, therefore he shows sinners the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Get this. It is not the perfect. It is not the sinless. It is not the one who practices spiritual disciplines perfectly that God reveals how to live or how to do what is right or how to serve God and glorify Christ. God reveals his way to the sinner 
to the one who admits he or she doesn't have it all together. The one who is willing to say, I need help. So when looking up, we reject language, I know what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. Instead, we say, show me, teach me, guide me. I've come to the end of myself. I don't have all the answers. I surrender the desires to fight for what I feel entitled to for however the Lord would lead. In that place, we find God's wisdom. This past year, some friends gave me a devotion called Streams in the Desert. If you're not familiar with that, it's an assortment of scripture passages, poetry, and selected writings to minister to individuals experiencing seasons of sorrow and suffering. So as I was preparing for this sermon, I came across this entry on August 20th. Each of us will have a time of crisis when all our resources will fail and we, when we face either ruin or something better than we ever dreamed. But before we can receive this blessing, we must rely on God's infinite help. We must be willing to let go, surrendering completely to him, and cease from our own wisdom, strength, and righteousness. At that place, when we are not trusting in a prior experience, when we're not trusting in our opinion, when we're not trusting in a personal desire, we find the wisdom of God. So rather than staying stuck, rather than being paralyzed and feeling powerless, we look up with open hands, letting go of what we have been holding on to, and we press forward with God's wisdom and strength and righteousness. So when looking up, we see God's rescue, we see God's forgiveness, we see God's wisdom, and last, we see God's kindness. In verses 12 through 15, the, the psalmist explains the type of relationship the one who looks up has with God. Who is this person who fears the Lord? He will show him the way he should choose. He will live a good life and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he reveals his covenant to them. My eyes are always on the Lord, for he will pull my feet out of the net. The psalmist has been and will be cared for. The psalmist recognizes, no matter how trapped I feel, God will not abandon me. I'm not rejected. Uh, I'm, I'm not alone. He will not let me go down to the pit. He will pull my feet out of the net. I am treasured and precious in the eyes of my creator and Lord. The psalmist is caught up in the goodness of God. He is kind and I live a good life. It is not a life free from suffering and sorrow, but it is not defined by it either. That, that language, the secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him. It is, it is referencing a close relationship. Some translations use the word friendship. So in verse 2, what we've seen to address God, the psalmist says, my God. Now this is not a cry of contempt. My God, how could you? Instead, the psalmist is expressing close relationship. The psalmist doesn't use the language God as a title 
but rather my God. This is the difference between me addressing one of my daughters in the Gardner family as daughter in contrast with my daughter. Daughter, daughter indicates a reality. There is a, there's a familial connection between the two of us. We're, we're part of the same family. My daughter implies closeness and love. It's even a bit possessive. That's my daughter. I love her with my whole heart. I treasure my relationship with her. The, the psalmist is not addressing a deity that is distant and detached. The God who created and rules the universe is my God. I have a close relationship with him. I love him. He loves me. I treasure my relationship with him and he treasures his relationship with me. When we look up, we understand God to be kind. We are comfortable crying out when we feel down, when we aren't all put together, when we aren't all neat and clean, when we feel all sorts of words like distracted and distraught and downcast and destroyed. We feel comfortable using a prayer like Psalm 25, knowing in the midst of our chaos, in the midst of our chaos, God is consistent and God is kind. He listens to our pleas. He cares when we struggle and when we feel down. It's not that difficult circumstances don't happen to God's people. I know some of us tend to believe that myth. We become Christians and we think we will experience nothing but happiness and bliss, some type of walk in the clouds. God shouldn't let his people experience pain. But God's people do experience great pain. They experience great sorrow and great suffering. But in the midst of that, we are not driven to despair. We are not left to struggle in self-pity. I need you all to look up for a moment. If you're anything like me, this action of lifting up our souls, lifting up our eyes, lifting up our heads, sometimes, sometimes we don't want to do it. We don't want to let go of our sadness. We deserve to be sad. We don't deserve God's blessing. So surrendering that sadness, looking up, it, 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 would, it would dismiss the darkness of events we experienced. Or it would dismiss the dark acts we committed against others. We should be sad. We should feel down. The words of Psalm 25, they do not dismiss darkness. They do not dismiss what causes us to, to feel down, but it puts it into perspective, declaring there is something greater than earthly circumstances determining our meaning and driving our mindset. The, the story of grief told by the Atlantic, it is a story of sadness that is so overwhelming. Some make it and some don't. That's the cultural story. The story of the Christian is different. This act of looking up when we feel down, it's not a self-help strategy, something you and I do to make ourselves feel better. In looking up, we see God's character. We see his compassion and care for his people, and we can't help but be captivated. We can't help but be caught up. 
And so situations that lead us to feel down, very real situations leading us to feel disgraced, feel guilty, to, to feeling confused and feeling lonely, they do not ultimately define our mood and drive our mentality. Our God does. May we be the type of people who look up when we feel down. Let's pray.